I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been into a cave? Not, not maybe like the little accidental cave, but like a big, legitimate, real cave. Uh, if you have, if you've been maybe down at Lake of the Ozarks or something like that, you've been in one of those big caves, you've probably seen some of those really cool rock formations. There's the ones that, that hang from the ceiling. There's the ones that grow up from the ground. The stalactites are the ones on the ceiling, if I remember right. Stalagmites grow up from the ground, and sometimes they meet in the middle and form these massive columns. And it's really amazing how they're formed. If, if, you, if you don't know, I'm sure most of you know this, but if you don't know how those are formed, what happens is, is in the cool air of the cave, the, the moisture in the air condenses on the surface of the rock, on the ceiling. And as that condensation accumulates, it forms these little droplets, and they run to the lowest point nearby, and then eventually gravity takes over. Those droplets get heavy enough where they fall to the cave floor. Drip, 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 slowly, but consistently, day after day, year after year, decade after decade. And this constant dripping does something amazing. Each little drip of water contains just a few trace elements of minerals, often limestone, that, that gathers there, that's carried in that water. And when those droplets fall, it deposits those minerals on the cave floor. It leaves a few behind, and it deposits a few on the floor. And what happens is over the years, it builds up over time to form these large stone formations. You know, the, the deposits they leave on the ceiling form the stalactites, and they keep dripping down to the edge and dripping off the tip, and then grows up from the bottom. Now, if you've been here at our church over the last several months, you know that we're in Genesis, and we've been in Genesis, and we're going to be in Genesis. And nearly every week, we talk about the same theme, don't we? It's God's covenant promises. It was the theme last week and the week before that. It's the theme this week, and it will be the theme next week. We're tracing in the book of Genesis the unfolding of God's promise and the progressive fulfillment of that promise. It's one of the central themes not only of Genesis, but of the Old Testament and of the whole Bible. And what I want to encourage you with this morning is this. It's actually a good thing for you and for me to hear this constant message that God always keeps his promises. And that he does so because he's good and gracious. And that he accomplishes these plans by his sovereign power. We need to hear that again and again and again and again. And I hope that the residue from these sermons, from these texts, from these stories, is building something that is solid and lasting in your life. And here's why that's important. Friends, you are going to be in seasons of life, and some of you are in them right now, where you are going to face major trials, you're going to experience major temptations, you are going to encounter doubt-inducing obstacles to your faith. And at that moment, when you are in the moment of testing, when you're in the fire, it's too late to build a theology. At that moment, it's too late to try to figure out who God is. When that moment comes, you have to know it has to be there, and it has to be rock solid. You need to be absolutely certain that God is good, that God is gracious, and that God always keeps his promises. You have to know that. It has to be there. So as we continue to look to the portrait of God and the portrayal of his covenant-keeping character in Genesis, I hope that these sermons are more than just a steady drip in your life. I hope they bring us under the waterfall of God's truth in his word so that it builds something that is strong and lasting and real 
a foundation for our faith. And I want to ask if you'd join me and pray that God would do that now as we open his word. Heavenly Father, we know that the psalmist in Psalm 119 says, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. Lord, we confess that this is our desire as well this morning, that you would give us life through your word. Lord, give us what we need. Nourish our faith. Give us deep roots and a strong foundation as we listen to the truth of your word. We thank you for this gift. We ask that your spirit would illuminate it to us now and apply it to our lives. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Genesis chapter 25. This chapter brings the life of Abraham to a close. We met Abraham back in chapter 12. Chapter 25 is the end of his journey. And as it brings the life of Abraham to a close, it sets the stage for the next major section of Genesis, the story of Isaac, Abraham's son, the next generation, and his family, his son Jacob and his descendants. The names change as we shift gears here. But one thing remains constant, the God of promise, the God who speaks the God who acts for his glory and for the good of his people according to his promise. That is the unchanging constant factor. And what I want us to see this morning is just to look at this constant theme of God's grace. God's grace. This theme has been evident since the very beginning. You remember when Adam and Eve sinned? God didn't destroy them. He clothed their nakedness. and He gave them a promise of a redeemer. That's God's grace. When the world grew so corrupt that God decided he had to wipe out the whole human race from the earth with a flood, Noah found favor, grace, in the eyes of the Lord. God preserved him and his family and started a new human race, in a sense, a new beginning through him and gave them a promise of grace in the rainbow. When the whole world was living under a curse just a few generations later and the, the languages are confused and everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, God chooses Abraham and promises blessing for him against the backdrop of all this cursing and blessing not just for Abraham but for all the families of the earth through Abraham and his descendants. This is grace, the gracious promise of God's covenant. And even as Abraham stumbles along the way, when he lies when he doubts, when he fears, when he fails, when he compromises, God continues every step of the way to rescue him, to preserve him, and to restore him, and to bless him. Salvation history is the record of God's grace. That's what it is from page one until the end. And I want to just share with you three observations about God's grace this morning from chapter 25 and from what we find there. Number one, we see that God's grace is faithful. God's grace is faithful. He does what he says he will do. He is faithful. We see this in verses 1 through 11. Just follow along as I read. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shuah. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letushim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanok, Abida, and Elda. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life. 175 years. 
Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled in Be'er Lahai Roy. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth, Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Adbil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Timah, Jetur, Nafish, and Kedemah. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names. By their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. Now, you might look at that and say, wow, that's a lot of hard names to pronounce. Again, just wrapping up some family tree information. But I want us to see in this section that God's grace is faithful, that he does what he says he will do. That's the point of all this. That's why Moses records it, so that they would see that, okay, this is what God is like. He's faithful. His grace endures. His steadfast love, as the psalmist says, endures forever. In the last chapter, if you remember, it seemed as if Abraham was nearing his death. It seemed as if on his deathbed he gave this instruction to his servant to go get a wife for Isaac. As was the tradition, heads of household put their house in order before dying. They didn't wait and leave all that to their kids to figure out. So we saw that last week. He sent his servant to get a wife for Isaac. But it seems that the reports of Abraham's looming death were premature. As we get into chapter 25, we see that there's more to his life. It continues on. Consider this. Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. He was 100, okay? So we're going to do a little math here. I know it's Sunday morning, but you've had your coffee, so I know you can do this. So Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. And Isaac was married at the age of 40. So that would make Abraham how old? 140. Thank you, Paul. You didn't even have coffee this morning, did you? You can do the math. So Abraham was 140 years old when, uh, when, Sarah, when Sarah died, right? We can, we can do that math. But he lived to 175 years, which means that for roughly 35 years after the death of Sarah, Abraham is still alive. And according to Genesis 25, these 35 years after the death of of Sarah and the marriage of Isaac to Rebekah, these 35 years were fruitful ones. He married again after Sarah passed away, and he had six sons. And the record of these sons not only explains the background of some of the surrounding people groups that would later interact with Israel. We see one of his sons was named Midian, and the Midianites will feature prominently uh, later on. Um, Moses will one day marry a Midianite, a distant relative of the people Israel. And as the children of Israel leave Egypt and go into, or leave Egypt and go into the promised land, we see them interacting there. And, and even later, we see the Midianites popping up. So this kind of explains where the Midianites came from. But even more than that, it shows the blessing of God on Abraham. Consider, for, for 140 years, this man that God promised would be fruitful and multiply, he had two sons. Only one through his proper wife, Sarah. Barrenness 
was a big challenge. But in his final days, he has six sons, and he becomes truly the father of many nations, the Israelites and the Midianites, and there will be even more to come. It shows the blessing of God upon, upon Abraham that he is fruitful. But these sons were not the heirs of God's covenant promise. Through Isaac, the promise was destined to continue. So as an expression of faith, and as a concern, demonstrating his concern that the promise would be fulfilled through Isaac, Abraham sends all these sons away. But he doesn't send them away empty-handed. It says that he gave these sons, the sons of his concubines, we see that he sends them away with gifts, uh, Ishmael and the rest. But he gives all that he has to Isaac, showing that Abraham is honoring God's word that Isaac would be the heir. So he gives him all he has. And when he finally does die, Moses affirms that he died in verse 7 at 175 years old. Verse 8, it says he breathed his last and died in a good old age. There's a sense of peace, of shalom, of fullness here. An old man, full of years. He can't complain. There's nothing that's been lacking. And he was gathered to his people, joining the saints that went before him. God had promised Abraham long life. God had promised him blessing. God had promised him peace and fruitfulness. And guess what? God had given him everything that he said he would give him. Then the two estranged brothers, Isaac and Ishmael, they come together to bury their father next to Sarah in the promised land, in the cave that he had purchased by faith in Canaan. Even in death, there's a sense of expectancy that the land and all that God promised would be theirs. Abraham is now dead. He's gathered to his people, reunited with Sarah, with Noah, with Enoch, and the saints who had gone before him. And now the page is ready to turn to Isaac, to the next generation. The promise passes to him. Notice verse 11. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac. The God who had blessed Abraham now blesses Isaac, his son. And Isaac settles at Be'er Lahai Roy. Abraham is now dead. Even though believers die, it does not mean that God's program is going to stop advancing. Moses is emphasizing here the promise continues. God's plans will not be stopped because of death. His promises are going to be fulfilled. And all of this affirmation that God had blessed Abraham, all of this emphasis that God had been faithful, that his grace was faithful, it really leaves us fully expecting that it'll be the same way for Isaac, doesn't it? I mean, we can expect God blessed Isaac, and that leaves us full of expectation that if he did all this for Abraham, he will surely do it for Isaac as well. But before we get to Isaac's story, Moses quickly summarizes the career of Ishmael, Abraham's other son. He, like the sons of Keturah, is outside the covenant, but he is still a recipient of God's faithfulness. Remember that Ishmael, too, had been given a promise. Remember, God had told Hagar, his mother, in chapter 16, I will surely remember your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. He told her, he shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. That language is echoed right here, that God not only did for Abraham all that he promised, not only did he bless Isaac as he promised, he kept his promises to Ishmael as well. God had told Abraham in chapter 17, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. And what happened to Ishmael? 
Moses tells us exactly what God said would happen. Twelve princes, a great nation. You see, unlike politicians who make and break almost all of their campaign promises, unlike, unlike people who love us inconsistently, who change their minds, God's steadfast love endures forever. That's the point here. That's the point. Whether it's to Abraham or to Isaac or to Ishmael, God is faithful. His grace is faithful. Do not believe the lies of the enemy when he hints to you that God will not be faithful to you. Doubt your own doubts when you think that you might be an exception to God's grace, that there will be an end to his faithfulness towards you, that God will give up. When we see God's faithful grace in the end of Abraham's story, when we see it in the summary of Ishmael's life and death, we're encouraged to expect it in our own lives and encouraged to expect it as well as the spotlight turns to the life and career of Isaac. God's grace is not only faithful, but number two, what we see in this chapter is that God's grace is also sovereign. Not only does God do what he says, God also do what he chooses. We see this in verses 19 through Uh, 26, I'll read it for you. The page now turns, the spotlight shifts. Verse 19, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand, holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. This little phrase in verse 19, these are the generations of Isaac, that's a major flag that indicates a new phase in the story. It's a new beginning, the story of Isaac and his household. And right off the bat, the new bearer of the promise, Isaac. He faces the same challenge that his father and mother had faced for so many years. His wife, Rebecca, this perfect wife that was the wife that was obvious God had planned for her to be the one, she was barren. And this is more than a, dif- than a difficult disappointment for a married couple. Her barrenness was a reality that made the fulfillment of God's promises Seemingly impossible. If the family tree ends with Isaac, if they have no children, there is no great nation, there is no blessing, there is no land that's possessed, there is no salvation for the world, there is no seed to crush the head of the serpent, and there is no Jesus to die for our sins. It's a big deal. And according to verse 26, this barrenness lasted for 20 years. I mean, these few verses kind of fly right through it, but imagine 20 years of waiting and of praying. But Isaac did not make the same mistake as his father. He did not take a servant as a surrogate mother. Instead, he prayed to God, the one who hears, the one who sees, and God, in verse 21, answered. 
This is God's sovereign grace. God said, this is the wife I want for you. And Isaac said, but she's barren. And God says, that doesn't matter. I am able to do exactly what I promised, do exactly as I choose, and it doesn't matter if she's barren or not. I can overcome that. This is sovereign grace. It proves the miraculous birth that was granted to Sarah and Abraham in their old age was no fluke. Isaac's birth was not a fluke. God's capable of overcoming the natural processes of nature to provide for them a son. And as we all know, and as we celebrate every Christmas, it won't be the last time in history that God provides a miraculous birth to further his plan to bring salvation. Just ask Joseph and Mary. They can attest to God's power, his sovereign power, his sovereign grace. But this sovereignty, God's absolute control and rule and his freedom to do as he chooses, it's seen not only in the miracle of conception, but we see God's sovereign grace also in the prophetic word about the destiny of these two children. You see, Rebecca was not only pregnant, she was pregnant with twins. And it was evidently an uncomfortable pregnancy. And she says, if I'm pregnant, what's going on? Because there is something going on here that seems out of the ordinary. The children struggle together within her, it says. And she's confused and she's perhaps afraid. And so she inquires of the Lord and he reveals to her that there is a national rivalry that's already brewing in her womb. Look at what God says. The news is shocking. Two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The reality was she was going to have twins. It's funny, we have a couple moms in here who've had twins. Double blessing, but these twins are already at each other's throats in a sense. The twins would become the fathers of two different nations, Edom and Israel. And they would be in perpetual competition. It's a surprise to her, shocking news. Imagine, she's not only uncomfortable, she's probably got the pregnancy hormones flowing, and she's told that two nations are in her womb. That would have been mind-blowing. But there's more. There's more. Not only was there two nations, but she's given some shocking news, even more shocking than that, that power and blessing would not belong to the eldest, the one who came out first. Power, blessing, the promise, prominence, prosperity, it would belong to the younger. Jacob and not Esau would be the recipient of God's promise. Jacob and not Esau would be the heir of the covenant blessings. Now, why is this so shocking? Why would this be so surprising that the older would serve the younger? We have to remember here, we're reading this several thousand years removed, okay? And their culture was not like ours. In our culture, we've come to expect, and this isn't a bad thing necessarily, we've come to expect equal opportunity. Doesn't matter who's oldest, doesn't matter who's youngest, doesn't matter where you're from, doesn't matter your ethnicity, doesn't matter what socioeconomic background, everything's out there for you. Follow your dreams, right? That's what people say. And we, we are not surprised. And actually, we love the stories of the underdogs rising to the top. But in that culture, that's not how things worked. The older was always the heir. The older was always the prominent one. 
for the younger one to rise to the top was completely counter to culture, completely counter to tradition, completely counter to their expectation of what was going to happen. And you might say, why would God say this? Why would God say that the older shall serve the younger? Why would God say that one is going to be stronger and it's not the one you expect? It's not the one that's most likely to be stronger. You know what? No reason is given. God doesn't tell us why the older should serve the younger. This is simply God's choice. God decided that the chosen line would continue through Jacob's lineage and not Esau's, that he would bestow the covenant blessings upon the unexpected, that he would use the unlikeliest of instruments to further his plan of salvation. The nation Israel and not Edom would be God's covenant people simply because that's what God decided to do. His grace, his blessing is sovereign. This is sovereign grace. And this is how God always works. God loves and chooses and saves the unlikely. Aren't you thankful for that this morning? God chooses and loves and saves the unexpected simply because he wants to. Because he wants to. Paul uses this passage to explain later why some follow Christ and some reject him. In Romans chapter 9, verse 10, he says, When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And that last verse may be kind of confusing to us. We need to understand that Paul is quoting here from Malachi chapter 1. Years and years later after this, as Jacob and Esau had come to represent two nations, the Israelites and the Edomites. And the Edomites as a nation throughout the Old Testament experienced God's wrath. They experienced God's judgment. They were a wicked people who did not follow God. And they experienced the consequences of it. But the Israelites experienced God's gracious love and his mercy. They were recipients of his covenant. And the contrasting histories of these two nations. Paul is saying, Jacob I have loved, Esau as I have hated. The history of these two, two nations, it traces all the way back to God's sovereign purpose of election. In choosing Jacob and not choosing Esau. And Paul tells us that this highlights the nature of God's grace, that God's grace is sovereign. Paul anticipates our knee-jerk reaction to this truth. Some of you might be thinking or feeling it right now. Paul continues in verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? You see, our initial response is to say, God, is, that's not fair. That's not fair. Some of us might be too scared to say it out loud, but we think it, don't we? God, that's not fair. That's unjust. Paul knows we're going to feel that and ask that question. He raises it for us. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And Paul answers emphatically in the strongest possible terms in the, in the Greek text. Meganoita, by no means, may it never be. Far be it from us, we should ever think or say such a thing. For he says to Moses, and here he quotes another Old Testament passage, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Paul concludes, so then, in light of God's dealings with Jacob and Esau, in light of God's word to Moses, in light of what we see happening throughout history, 
So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Paul's argument in Romans 9 is thoroughly biblical. The history of the nation, Isaac and not Ishmael, Jacob and not Esau, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, all of it reveals God's sovereign grace, his purposes of election. God's choice, as we will see in the next chapter, would not be appreciated by everyone involved. Just like people today don't always like this truth. From birth, there was a fierce rivalry between these two boys. Isaac would not like God's choice. We see later that he favored Esau. Verse 27, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents, and Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Isaac didn't really like God's choice. He favored the older, Esau. Rebekah, on the other hand, did not trust God's power to fulfill his plan. She favored Jacob and would try to manipulate things to help God out and make sure that the promises came to him. We'll see that story next week. And you know what? Jacob himself did not act very much like a man of faith. He didn't seem very worthy of God's call. But despite all of this, God's sovereign grace would prevail. Despite Jacob's sin, despite Isaac's interference, despite... uh, Rebecca's manipulation, God's sovereign grace will prevail. You know, there's a certain level of mystery in all this. God's sovereign choice is something that's hard for us to perceive and understand. But as we read scripture, we are shown that it's really not something that's open for discussion. God owes us no explanation. If we would continue, I'm not preaching Romans 9 this morning, but Paul gets to the bottom line of it and says, who are we? to say back to the potter, why have you made me like this? We're the clay pots, shaped and fashioned to be what God designs us to be. And our place is not to question God's choice, but to humbly submit, to receive with gratitude, and to worship him for his sovereign grace. This truth ought to provide a sense of gratitude in us. Our salvation was planned and initiated and accomplished by God. His grace from the beginning to the end is behind all of it. Paul tells us, Romans 9, our salvation depends not on human will, our choice. It's not ultimately determined by our choice. It depends not ultimately on our exertion, Paul says, our efforts, our actions. It depends ultimately on God who has mercy. Yes, our will And our efforts and actions are involved, and they are real, and they matter, and we're held accountable for them. But God, according to Scripture, is always the first cause. His grace is sovereign. It's sovereign. And we see that lived out. This is not a systematic theology concept. It's something we see fleshed out in the stories of Scripture and in the teaching of the apostles, in the words of Jesus. It's from front to back. So as we're looking at God's grace here, we see God's grace is faithful. He always does what he says he will do. God's grace is sovereign. He does what he chooses to do. And then third, God's grace is unmerited. His grace is unmerited. His grace is not earned. 
and it's not deserved. And we see this through a little case study in the lives of these two boys, Jacob and Esau. Look with me in verse uh, 29. It says, Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. He's been out hunting, walking, you know, lugging his gear all the way around. If you've been on a long hunting trip, and I know I was talking to Jared recently, and he said they did this survival camping trip, and they thought they would catch fish, and they didn't. So they're starving, right? So he comes back. He's starving, exhausted. And Esau says to Jacob in verse 30, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. And if you could look at this in the, in the, in the Hebrew text, it's interesting. The red, that word red is, sounds like the word Edom, which would be his nickname, He's a red-headed, kind of reddish-skinned guy, and he says, give me some of that red stuff, and he says it twice, like he's gasping, red stuff, the red stuff, I, I want some of that, and he's gasping for that. He says, give me some of that red stew, for I am exhausted, therefore his name was called Edom, kind of giving some insight there. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So what does this little case study show us? Well, several things. Right from the start, we see the differences between the two brothers. We've seen it in their physical descriptions. Esau is hairy and he's, he's red. Jacob's not. He's, as we'll see later, smooth-skinned and not a redhead in any sense of the, the word. We've seen difference in their vocations, that Esau likes to hunt. He's an outdoorsman. And Jacob dwells in tents. He's following in his father and grandfather's footsteps as, footsteps as a nomadic herder. He raises his food from the flock. Esau just goes out and kills his. And neither one is necessarily better or worse, just different. We've seen the difference of them as they come out, that Esau comes out first, but Jacob comes out grasping his heel. And so he's named Jacob, which means heel grabber or usurper. That's kind of the negative sense. In a positive sense, I'm sure his mother and father meant it this way. It could mean, may he be at your heels in a sense of, may God be at the rear guard, like God's got your back. That's kind of one sense of the name Jacob. But on the flip side, the negative sense is heel grabber, usurper. He's an overreacher. And as Jacob lives out his life, we see that that's really the sense that fits. That's the shoe that fits for him. But these brothers are different in many ways. They're different in their destiny. We've seen that the older is destined to serve the younger. But here in this story, we see they're also different in their character. We see that they're different in their character. And what's interesting here is that there's a contrast between these two boys. And it's not a contrast, get this, not a contrast of the good son and the bad son. They're actually just different shades of bad. They're different shades of bad. Look at what they do. Esau is reckless. He's brash. He's impulsive. He's foolish. He makes a dumb move here and sells his birthright for a bowl of stew. To dismiss the birthright, that's the legal right to inherit the double portion. He would have got twice as much from his father. He was the one, because he was older, who was set to inherit all of his father's wealth. And Isaac was wealthy. Because Abraham was wealthy, and that wealth was increasing, and he said, I don't care. I don't care about all that. I don't care about the larger share. This was unthinkable. 
It was unthinkable, not because it was just dumb, but because it actually dishonored his father. It would have brought shame to his family. He says, I don't care about our family's reputation and wealth and the family name. More than even dishonoring his father, it was complete dismissal of the source of all that prosperity. Where did Isaac and Abraham get all this wealth? God had blessed them. Esau says, I don't care. That means nothing to me. I just want something to eat. He was ignoring and despising the very blessings of God. This word despise, when it says Esau despises birthright, it's the same word that describes Goliath's attitude when he sees this young boy come out to fight against him. He calls for the strongest and best warrior to come out, and it says that he despised David. When he sees David comes out, he scorned him. He says, that's nothing. That's ridiculous. Am I a dog that you send out this boy with sticks and stones? It's the same attitude here that Esau has towards his birthright. It's not just economically foolish. It's spiritual blindness and evidence of a hard heart. He cared nothing for God, God's promises, or God's provision. That's Esau's character. He lives for the moment. He sees what he wants and he takes it and he doesn't care about the consequences or what it costs. But if Esau is reckless, we see that Jacob, by contrast, is ruthless. He takes advantage of his brother. He's conniving, he's shrewd, he's manipulative, and he exploits his brother's hunger for personal gain. That's not very righteous, is it? That's not very loving. He is ruthless. And as we see this story unfold, there's not a good son and a bad son. They're both the bad sons. They are both the bad sons. But God chose Jacob. Why? Why did God choose Jacob? Even though he's ruthless, conniving, shrewd, manipulative, exploiting others for personal gain, this is injustice, and it is shameful. God had told Abraham that he was to be blameless and walk before him in righteousness. Neither of these boys are living up to that. But God chooses Jacob. Why? Why? It's not, hear me, it's not because of any goodness in him. Some people say, yes, God chooses those who will be saved and he elects those based on knowing the good things that they will do in the future, their faith and their response to him. That's not how it works. At least that's not what the Bible tells us. God doesn't choose Jacob because of any goodness in him, but simply because of his own purposes. You see, both are sinners. Neither are saints. Yet God extends the promise to Jacob. This grace was completely unmerited completely undeserved, but extended nonetheless by a merciful God. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God made this choice of Jacob before they were born. Neither of them had even done anything good or evil, and it's not even based on what they could do or would do. It's simply and purely according to God's purpose of election. God's grace Any grace that you or I have ever experienced is totally unmerited. It's not earned, and it's not deserved. This is the portrait of God and his grace that we see. His grace is faithful. His grace is sovereign. His grace is unmerited. This is who our God is. And this is how he has worked throughout history. And this is who he is today. And it's how he's working right now. I think there's a few implications here for us. Uh, things that we need to take away as, as we study through this text. And number one, although this is maybe not the main point, it is an important application for us. I think there's a warning here for us. 
a warning against the foolishness of Esau. We saw here that Jacob is not innocent. He's not necessarily deserving of the promise. But nevertheless, the account ends, it closes with this astonishing observation that Esau despised his birthright. And the New Testament authors pick up on this. They pick up on this and they actually use it to warn us today. Listen to what Hebrews 12, 16 says. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. To be sexually immoral, to live a life that is unholy, it means we're being like Esau in the sense that we're living for the moment, taking something that we feel we need, that we feel we want, and we don't care about the consequences. We don't care about the cost. We're only focused on what's right in front of us. That's why he says, don't be like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. At some point, if we live like that, it will be too late, and there will be regret. We're warned not to live like Esau. He lived for the moment. Don't do that. That's a warning for us. Don't allow your appetites to rule you. Because that kind of approach to life is spiritually deadly. That kind of approach to life is utterly blind to the reality of God's faithful and sovereign and unmerited grace. Esau wasn't thinking about God or God's word or God's promise. He was thinking about his stomach. And that's it. If we're honest, sometimes we live that way. We live for the moment. We allow our appetites to rule us. We make choices that ignore the long-term consequences. Choices that forget God and his word and his character. And it always brings regret and loss. Philippians 3.18, Paul says this, For many, that's sobering, many, not just some, not just a few, but many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. This breaks Paul's heart. He says, many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and, their glory in their, and they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. What a fitting description of Esau. His God was his belly. He gloried in his shame. We see here in Genesis that when he ate and drank, he rose up and went his way. He walked off and didn't even care. Whatever. He gloried in his shame. His mind was set on earthly things. And Paul says, there are sadly today many who are like that. And they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And their end is destruction. Let me warn you this morning, don't throw away God's promise of goodness and life and joy for a temporary moment of worldly pleasure. There may be some in the room this morning who are at this moment outside the grace of God. You know about it. You've heard about it. You're even hearing about God's goodness and God's grace this morning. You know that Jesus came and he died on the cross and rose again so that sinners like you and me could be saved. But like Esau, that promise of blessing doesn't really mean anything to you. And you're actually more interested in the moment, living your life, doing what you want to do. You don't want to be constrained by God. Let me warn you this morning not to make the same mistake Esau did. 
and ignore the promise of God, the blessing of God. You're hearing the gospel this morning. I hope that you won't throw it away and walk away because Paul tells us that that path leads to destruction. There's a second implication, though. For those of you who have tasted God's grace, for those of you who belong to his family, those of you who have experienced the cleansing from sin and recognized the call of God in your own heart, you've heard his voice and you've responded in faith and repentance, let me invite you this morning to meditate and marvel at God's grace. God called you. Even though you were undeserving, even though you never earned it, even though you and I, all of us, were totally happy to live for ourselves and to walk in sin until we destroyed ourselves. Yet God showed mercy. Marvel at that grace and marvel at this. Marvel that that salvation that you and I have comes to us because Jesus was not like Jacob. Jesus was not like Esau. Think about what Jesus did. Think about the dramatic reversal of this story in the gospel of Jesus. Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. It was all created through him and for him. That's what Colossians tells us. Hebrews 1 says that he is the heir of all things. But consider this. Jesus Christ shares his birthright with us. And he does so freely. He doesn't extort us. He doesn't exploit us. He's not manipulating and taking advantage of us the way Jacob did to Esau. Jesus actually suffered and died and bore the cost himself. He paid it with his blood so that you and I could receive an eternal inheritance. And this is the culmination of all of God's gracious promises. This inheritance is ours because of God's gracious Sovereign, faithful, unmerited grace. Listen to what 1 Peter 1.3 says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us. There's that sovereign grace again. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Get this. To an inheritance. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Aren't you thankful that Jesus is not like Jacob? And that he shares his inheritance, his birthright, his blessings that he earned, that he purchased with his blood. He shares that with us, free of charge. Colossians 1.12, Paul says, we give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You see, we were unqualified. We were sinful, we were rebels, we were outside of God's promises, and God changed our status. He qualified us to share in the eternal inheritance. Ephesians 1.11 says, In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. There's God's sovereign grace once again. Think about this. Like Jacob and Esau, we are unworthy but chosen. We are sinful, but we are counted as saints. We are unfaithful, but we are recipients of God's faithful provision. What a cause for worship this morning. Praise God for his grace. 
his faithful, sovereign, unmerited grace. That's a cause for celebration. And friends, that's something to tell the world about. That Jesus is here to share his inheritance with all who will repent of their sin, lay down their weapons of rebellion, and embrace him as their Savior, their Lord. He gives freely to all who will come by faith. And for all of us who do come, you know what happens? As we come, as we hear the call and we believe, we look over our shoulder, we look in the rearview mirror, and we realize that was all God's doing, wasn't it? Yes, I chose to follow him, but it's because he chose me. Yes, I believed in the gospel, but it's because he opened my eyes to understand it and softened my heart to receive it. Yes, I belong to his family, but it's because of God's gracious choice. He has made and kept amazing promises, and I get to partake in them. Not because I deserve it, but because Jesus deserves it, and because he shares it all with me. Guys, that's who our God is. That's what our God is like. And I hope that this, these truths, even though some of them are mysterious, even though some of them may be difficult at times for us to wrap our minds around, I hope that they are a comfort to you. And I hope that they humble you and encourage you this morning and that they move you to worship and faith. God, we give you praise and glory this morning for your grace. You are so faithful. We acknowledge your sovereignty this morning and thank you for pouring out grace upon sinners like us who do not deserve it. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen our faith this morning and that as we go through the ups and downs of life, we would be guided and, and stabilized and, and protected from everything that we face by a right view of who you are. We thank you, God, for what you've revealed to us in your word. You've shown us who you are. Pray that as we look upon you with eyes of faith, you would strengthen us and make us more and more like Jesus. And we pray it all in his name. Amen.